Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. The horrors of war could not have seemed more remote, as my family and I shared our Christmas joy with the growing family of the Commonwealth. Now this madness of war is once more spreading through the world, and our brave country must again prepare itself to survive against great odds. Not for a single moment did I imagine that this solemn and awful duty would one day fall to me, Dominic Sambrook. But whatever terrors lie in wait for us all, the qualities that have helped us to keep our freedom intact twice already during this sad century will once more be our strength. The words, slightly adapted, of Queen Elizabeth II on Friday the 4th of March 1983 as Britain entered the Third World War. Well, there was of course no Third World War in 1983. This was actually a British government exercise, a particularly chilling war game. But uh, Tom Holland, we both grew up during the 70s and 80s in the kind of heyday of the Cold War and these were kind of chilling times, weren't they? Oh, they were terrifying whenever you thought about them. Um, and I so I grew up outside Salisbury um, and Salisbury Plain, obviously big kind of army centre. And um, we were close to the town of Wilton, which I think was the some NATO headquarters. And I remember, must have been late 70s, um, a teacher proudly telling us that Salisbury was third on the Soviet <laughs> nuclear hit list. So apparently he said um, two nuclear bombs would go off over the North Sea to destroy all the kind of telecommunications or something. And then the third one was going to be detonated over Beach's bookshop, which was... A, wow, a, a, that's a, very a bookshop. <laughs> yeah, it was just outside, uh, just outside the, um, the close right around the, around the cathedral. So Ted um, Heath would have been in trouble. Ted Heath would have been the first to go. Um, and I remember, I remember, I remember my, my, my father coming to pick us up and sitting in the car and looking out at the spire of Salisbury Cathedral and imagining, you know, a sudden flash and the whole of it vanishing. And I don't think I ever really recovered. No, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because people now, I mean, younger people will find all this very bizarre, but I had exa- we had a teacher at school. A sand- I now think of him, Mr. Taylor, in his socks and sandals. He quite clearly was a member of CND. And uh, he used to give us sort of little lectures about um, the Russians had all these missiles aimed at us, but we had all these missiles aimed at them, and it was really our fault. And World War Three was, you know, looming at any moment. And um, we in the West Midlands would be entirely to blame. Um, so, but, well, but, 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 but the advantage, whenever I get any any kind of millennial grumbling, yeah. I just say that they had easy. Yeah, of course. They've got nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry it's about. There's only, only global warming or whatever. All that stuff, yeah. But that's nothing compared with the threat of uh, mushroom cloud. Now, 1983, um, the, the year we've just been talking about, is the subject of a brilliant book about how close the world came to nuclear destruction. And we are joined today by the author of said book, Taylor Downing, who also worked on what I still think is actually one of the best, one of the absolute best history series ever made. The um, big sort of, I think it was CNN, Cold War series in the in the 1990s, about a thousand parts long, interviews with all the big players. Um, so Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. And are we right? Is 1983 the moment when the world 
stood on the brink of destruction, do you think? Well, it, absolutely it was, yes. I mean, in conventional wisdom, the most dangerous part of the Cold War was the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 1962. That's what most people think of as the most dangerous moment. Um, but certainly I argue in my book, 1983, that in fact it was November 1983, one very specific evening, the evening of the 8th of November 1983, when the world really came closest to uh, nuclear Armageddon. And the big difference between events in the Cuban Missile Crisis and the events in November 1983 is that everybody knew about the Cuban Missile Crisis. The president was addressing the nation, my fellow Americans. There was live television coverage from the Caribbean as ships, uh, Russian ships were intercepted by American warships. Everything was very public. In America, people looked out of their windows and gauged the fastest route to the, to the nearest nuclear air raid shelter. Not that it would have done them much good, but there was, there was a genuine sort of public sense of anxiety in October 1962. Whereas in November 1983, nobody knew what was happening. This was behind closed doors completely. Uh, and that's why many people say when they discover what was really going on, that actually events in 1983, we knew it was a dangerous year. We knew it was a tense time, but actually it was far, far more alarming, far more dangerous than anybody realized at the time. And so it's really, what, oh, sorry, I, sorry, sorry, Dominic, I, but I mean, it, in a way, the, the implication of this is that, um, I mean, it's a kind of really frightening one, because you think that if there is a big global crisis and the eyes of the world are on, you know, ships steaming through Caribbean waters or whatever, then th then we know what we're facing. But actually, at any moment, <laughs> you know, the world could incinerate. We wouldn't even know about it. Exactly. I mean, that 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 is the terrifying thought from from 1983 when the Soviets feared they were coming under attack from the West and prepared a full nuclear strike, a full nuclear retaliation against Western Europe and the United States, and we didn't know about it. And one of the people. Uh, I interviewed on, on, on the subject uh, was Robert Gates, who was then um, deputy head of the deputy director of the CIA. And he actually said he used the phrase, he said, we were on the brink of nuclear war and we didn't even know it. Now, that's quite something from the, the, the deputy head of an intelligence agency. You know, you do you do want your intelligence operatives to tell you if the other guy's about to biff you on the nose, let alone launch a nuclear strike against you. And this went this went past almost unnoted in the United States and in, and in Western Europe. So, Taylor, let's talk a bit about the context, because um, people, who, people who haven't studied the Cold War often think of the Cold War as a sort of a, a great homogenous kind of blob. But obviously, it, it ebbed and flowed, didn't it? In the early 80s, so we've got to put this into the context of the early 80s, Reagan is president. He's, I think you know, he's talking to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. Um, Andropov is the... So Brezhnev is dead. Andropov is the um, is the Soviet leader, and and can you ex why do you think the, the, there was this sort of new sense of of tension? This sort of because there was a real sense of momentum, wasn't there, in 1983 of things spiraling out of control? Very much so. The only way to understand the crisis in November 1983 is, as you say, Dominic, to see it in its context. Um, so. The 70s had been a period of detente, had been a period of when it looked as though East and West were going to get on. There'd been the Helsinki Accords, there'd been the um, Soyuz space capsule linking up with the Apollo mission in space. You know, what, what could be more symbolic of sort of, 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 of unity and friendship than, than two space capsules, you know, link, linking up 
in the um, in, in space and so on. But that had all come to an end at the end of the 1970s. The Soviets had uh, deployed SS-20 missiles. The Americans felt they were being taken for a ride, that the Soviets were rearming. And that led to a shift to the right in the United States, which, which resulted in the election of Ronald Reagan, whose campaign was very strong on anti-communism, was very strong that America needed to rearm, needed to face off these guys. We needed to see them down. You know, the, 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 the bad guys were getting away with it and we mustn't, we mustn't allow them to do this. And that was very much part of Reagan's campaign. So when he becomes president at, in January 1981, you know, he immediately announces and his defense secretary, Caspar Weinberger, in his very first press statement says, we are going to rearm America and a whole new range of stealth bombers and the F-18 and uh, tanks and so on, all of which have been under development for some years, are all rolled out as quickly as possible. The Navy is increased. Defense expenditure almost doubles uh, in, in a few years in America to be a huge part of the U.S. Uh, gross national product goes goes into defense spending. And with this, Reagan sort of talks up the anti-communist rhetoric. As, as you say, he calls the Soviet Union uh, an evil empire. He announces that they're going to start this fantastic new program, a strategic defense initiative, where they're going to have missiles in space that will intercept incoming missiles. It's Star Wars, isn't it? Star Wars. It was yeah. instantly named Star Wars uh, and probably won quite a few friends in America by being named <laughs> after the George Lucas movie. Um, and so the, the rhetoric is really, really ramping up. And on the other side, the Soviet Union uh, has stagnated for 20 years under Brezhnev, the economy is hardly advanced, the policies haven't really changed. And when he dies in November 82, the, 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 the Politburo elect as his successor, not a younger man, not a man with new ideas, not a man with a sort of new vision of the Soviet Union. They elect a, an old man who is, has been for 20 years the head of the KGB. The KGB is the secret service. In, in the Soviet Union, uh, not only running uh, agents abroad, but also maintaining the, the surveillance of the entire Soviet society. Every factory has a KGB officer. Uh, every school had KGB officers. Um, everywhere, the sort of process of, of watching what people are doing and ensuring nobody steps out of line. The KGB are sort of managing internal security as well as the sort of external stuff that, that they're probably a bit more famous for now. And this sense of paranoia is building up in Moscow, this terrible sense that the West are economically more advanced. They've got computers. You know, in the Soviet Union in 1983, you couldn't have a typewriter or a photocopier without having an official license from the government. So computers were completely alien. The idea that there should be a free interchange of information and ideas was just completely alien to the centralized Soviet system. Uh, and with this comes, uh, the, as, as I say, a sort of sense of paranoia that the West are doing better than we are, that they're scheming away in some way that we don't fully understand. So when they're, when Reagan calls the Soviet Union the evil empire, this is massively offensive. They, 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 they're sort of not being given the respect they feel they deserve as a major power. 
And then when he talks about his Star Wars initiative, they, they, they cannot understand whether the Americans have the technology to do, to do this or not. They, they just feel that it's suddenly going to completely upset the balance. You know, we've been living since the, 50s with this concept of mutual assured destruction. We'll probably come back to that later on, I guess. Whereas if either side presses the nuclear button, they know that they're effectively committing suicide, that the retaliation will be so great that, that that'll be the end of the story. Um, and suddenly the Soviets begin to think maybe the Americans are getting around this. You know, if they can intercept all our missiles in space, if this Star Wars program can mean we can fire all our missiles, but none of them get through, they have a fantastic advantage over us. The, the nuclear balance of power or the balance of terror, if you like, that has prevailed from the 50s onwards is suddenly broken. The Americans can launch a a nuclear war and get away with it because they'll intercept all our missiles. And, and Taylor also... The, the kind of the, the, the close range nuclear missiles that start to be introduced by the Americans into Britain and to G Germany, that is also a, a crucial part of this, is it? Yeah, it so is. Cruise, cruise missiles are you know, green and common and, and so on. Cruise missiles it? are green and common and the, um, uh, the Pershing missiles uh, and uh, so on. Um, yes, that, that, that's very, very, very much part of it. The, what the Soviets had done in the late 70s, was introduced uh, a new range of uh, missiles that were, were short range. They could attack Western Europe um, from their bases in the Soviet Union, the SS-19 and so on. Um, the SS-20, sorry. Um, uh, and the, 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 this sort of fundamentally shifted the, the balance that if there were short range nuclear weapons that could take out parts of Europe. So America began to roll out its cruise missiles and its, um, and its Pershing missiles and so on. And, uh, that was all, uh, uh, that was really the beginnings of a new sort of tit for tat regime in, in the 1980s that was starting to get very, very dangerous. You had this, man in the White House talking very aggressively. He called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Well, that's very, very offensive to the, to the Soviets. Um, he was spending billions, almost trillions on rearming America. Uh, everywhere, everything in the American side was computer controlled, whereas the Soviets only had a tiny number of computers in, in their entire state. This sense that they were sort of losing out um, not only to the rhetoric from Reagan, but also to this huge arms expenditure that they couldn't keep up with, um, and, and to and to this sense that you know America was winning the Cold War. But what's so fascinating about that, Taylor? I think is, I mean, H. A. B. Taylor, I think it was who said that you know wars are generally start because not because people are kind of aggressive, but because they're afraid. And, and one thing that nobody in the West ever seemed to really get. And um, certainly this came as a great shock to Reagan, and we'll come to this later, I suspect, was that the, that the Russians were scared of them because they thought of the Russians as these sort of malevolent Bond villain type sort of conspirators sitting around their giant. I remember there's a great scene in Octopussy, a Bond film of 1983, where they're all sitting around this huge table and they've got maps and it's all very high tech. And and and, the, and what the people in the West didn't get was that the the people in the Kremlin were actually frightened that they but thought Dominic, the West would strike first. But also, the people in the West are frightened, right? 
Yeah, of course. Because you've had the, you know, the Soviet Union has invaded Afghanistan and it's crush, crushing yeah, trade unions in Poland and everything. So I, I, I get all that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sort of saying the Soviet so, Union is so a good guy. So this is a very, anecdot- very anecdotal, and I'm not sure how much credence to place on it, but I was so, just out having a coffee before that we recorded this podcast. Yeah. And I mentioned to this guy who was sitting next to me what the theme of the podcast was going to be. Was he a stranger? Uh, he, he Well, he... I, I can't reveal his identity because um, he he wow. said that that's very cool. He, he had he had knowledge of of uh, the workings of the cabinet um, in uh, in nineteen eighty three, and okay. said that a leading cabinet officer, uh, a leading member of the cabinet, had um, commissioned the building of a nuclear bunker. Really, a, pri- a private one for himself. And, oh, I said, I mean, can I, and I said, "Can I quote you on that?" And he said, uh, "Not by name." There was a trade in nuclear bunkers in the. I mean, there was an ideal bunker exhibition somewhere yes. in. The, um, and, and the advice was that you get your bunker, but also you have to invest in a gun. Oh yeah, because <laughs> you've got to kill your neighbours. You've got to kill right? your neighbours. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Taylor. Anyway, <laughs> Taylor, let's, let's get back. But that's but, the context. But, but essentially, there's a climate of fear on both sides, right? Yeah, climate of fear on both sides. Yes, absolutely. But but I think you're right in saying that the. Whilst America was particularly under Reagan was sort of aggressive and was, you know, punching out and, and this constant rhetoric against the Soviet Union, the, the, the Soviets were feeling that they were falling behind, that their technology wasn't quite as good as that of the West. They didn't understand how things worked in the West and that, and that, they, were, that they were falling behind in this race. Therefore, they needed to be sort of extra careful, extra watchful, um, extra vigilant against, against what the Americans were up to. And suddenly this sort of new figure, this old Hollywood star, you know, appears on the stage and attacks them almost sort of day after day. The, 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 the rhetoric is building up and it scared them. It, it absolutely scared them. So they started a, a, a process. It was called Operation Rian which was to look out for indicators that the Americans were preparing to launch a nuclear attack. Uh, and some of these were, were, were pretty sort of sensible. You know, are, are the military mobilizing? Well, obviously, that would happen if there was going to be a nuclear attack. So their agents were told to go and look for uh, mobilization of, of the military. Were blood banks being stored up in case the casualty rate increased? You know, sensible things like that. But eventually it became completely absurd. So agents were told to go and count the lights that were on in the Pentagon in Washington or the Ministry of Defense in London at night. And if they were more than a certain number, this would clearly conclude that, 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 that they were sort of plotting, plotting away at night. And if they um, came up with these marks, then they'd get promotion. So there was a kind exactly. of... Yes, the, 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 whole, the whole process fed on itself. <laughs> yeah. um, the agents in the field, even if they, you know, living in London or Washington, thought, well, you know, obviously America is not prepared or Britain's not preparing to go to war. But you, don't, you got no promotion for saying that. You only got promotion for finding the evidence that, yes, look, look, they're, they're planning something. So when there's a, a perfectly neutral announcement on, on the BBC that there's a, a new call for blood donors... Um, through the National Health Service, that's reported back to Moscow. Look, they're preparing for war because they're gathering blood banks, you see. So one thing after another sort of feeds itself in this rather frenzied, paranoid view in, 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 um, in Moscow. And, and, then the one- there's this, and then there's this war game, this NATO war game. Well, the war, yes, the, the, the war game comes at the end of a very, very tense year. Nin- 1983 had sort of built up stage by stage. You can only really understand the events in November 1983 by sort of seeing it in the context 
of what I think we now look back on is probably probably the most dangerous year, certainly up, up with 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis anyway, certainly one of the most dangerous years um, in, in the Cold War. And there were, you know, there, there, there were a series of events that sort of um, jacked up the, 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 the danger as far as the, the Soviets were concerned. So there's the rhetoric coming from the White House, coming from the, the president himself, coming from Reagan, the evil empire speech. Uh, and so on. Then there are a series of war games that the Americans play that constantly rattle the Soviet defenses. You know, they'll fly jets right up to the edge of the Soviet board and then sort of veer away at the last possible second. So that's Top Gun. That's Top Gun stuff. <laughs> but what you see what they're doing, they've got, they've got these giant KC-135, uh, um, listening aircraft up recording all the, all the chat and all the dialogue on the Soviet system. Um, th- th- this is going on constantly through through 1983. Then there's this remarkable event at the end of August 1983, when a civilian airliner, a Korean airliner, flight Cal 007, veers hundreds of miles off course over some of the most um, sensitive territory in the Soviet Union, the Kamchatka Peninsula, uh, uh, and, and then over... Um, uh, and then over Sakhalin Island and, and towards the mainland. Um, it's still not really very clear quite how this uh, airliner had managed to get so off course. But the at one point, it overlaps, it passes an American reconnaissance plane, um, and which is out electronically gathering information. And the Soviet system clearly in some way gets confused as to whether this is a civilian airliner or is a, an American spy mission. And they shoot it down. 269 completely innocent people on this Korean airliner uh, are, are killed. And of course, the American rhetoric, the outrage, the sense of how can any system you know, shoot down a civilian airliner, not be able to distinguish between a military plane and an airliner, shoot it down, kill all these innocent people. You know, the outrage absolutely um, erupts at, at that point. Uh, and the, Reagan calls uh, the Soviet Union a terrorist state. You know, this is this is really sort of severe stuff. And then there's a couple of other incidents that that that, that, that happen, totally unconnected, effectively with the Cold War. Um, in October, the end of October 1983, the um, Hezbollah blow up an American marine base in Beirut with a huge truck bomb. Um, the Americans are there as peacekeepers after after the, the war between Israel uh, and the Palestinians. Um, and America puts all its bases around the world on alert to look out for terrorists. The Soviets pick this up, but but think this is because they're preparing to launch a nuclear attack. Then there's the Americans invade the tiny Caribbean island um, of Grenada uh, and uh, take take over the island. And there's a, that's part of the Commonwealth territory. So there's a huge row bills between Thatcher and, and Reagan. And there's massive communication between London and Washington. That's another sign that the Soviets are looking out for. If they're about to launch an attack, London and Washington will be in regular contact. So one by one, these sort of signs are picked up in the Soviet Union, completely separate to anything to do with the Cold War. But they seem to be sort of ticking boxes, you know, in the... Um, 
um, in the Lubyanka, the head of the, the, the KGB, they have a they have a, a wall. They apparently had, I've been told, they had a sort of perspex wall with sort of matrix down one side and countries across the top. And every time an incident occurred, they sort of put a cross on on this perspex wall. And literally people could walk in. Very high tech, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People sort could of walk nuclear in bingo card. <laughs> and walk in and look and see these sort of crosses building up. And one by one, there were more crosses on the big board in the in the Lubyanka, in the KGB headquarters. And then then the incident comes which nearly sparks it off. And this is a NATO exercise. It's an annual exercise called Abel Archer. So this is Abel Archer 83. And in this exercise the NATO, it, it, it's not an exercise where troops go out and move all around. It's called a command post exercise. It's a communications exercise in which they invent a scenario in which there's a conventional war, which NATO are beginning to lose. A conventional war between the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet and the Eastern Bloc countries attack Western Europe. Uh, and it looks as though NATO is losing. So there's a request to the, 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 the military people put into the civilians a request to use nuclear weapons to respond. And at this point, the Soviets think, this is no war game. This is no practice. This has now become the real thing. The West, NATO, is about to launch nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union. So they prepare their full nuclear arsenal. Giant SS-19, 100-tonne missiles, uh, are put on maximum alert. Submarines are deployed under the Arctic ice, ready to fire their missiles against the West. The mobile um, uh, SS-20s are sent out into the forests and the swamps of the Soviet Union, ready to fire their missiles. And on the night of the 8th of November, uh, 1983, Andropov, who's a very ill man at this point, he's not even in the Kremlin, he's in a clinic outside <coughs> Moscow, the guy with the nuclear trigger, they're called Chegets in the, in, in the, they were called Chegets in the Soviet Union. It's the equivalent to the nuclear football. The guy with the codes sort of comes out and sits up with him, waiting to give the go code to launch this massive nuclear retaliation against the West. And the night ticks on, ticks through. And, uh, in the morning, the war game comes to an end and there is no. Attack Ooh, from the dear. West. Oh, there was a bit of tension there, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking, did it happen? Did we all get yeah. destroyed? But that's, Taylor, what so, would so it that's have... the background to um, Deutschland '83, isn't it? The, yes, that it is. kind of wonderful yeah. German drama about it. Is a, yes, a, that's a Stasi the, spy in the not, German not military. specifically Abel Archer, but but the general tension in that very dangerous year of 1983 is the background. Yes, to, to that Taylor, ta series. Taylor, what would it have taken that night for Andropov to have to have said go? So, in other words, a border incident, I mean, those things happened all the time, right? I mean, could it just have taken one small thing for, you know, for him to say, yeah, go for it? Do I think, think it could, Dominic. I think when, when crises escalate to that level, it's not really rational consideration that takes over. Any slight misunderstanding, any slight misinterpretation of what's going on you know, an incident in Berlin could just have been the final, the final trigger yeah. to say to say, right, fire those missiles. Um, okay, and so if they did, what what would have happened? So what what how how many cities in the West? How many bases? What how how many would have been taken out? Well, we don't know the exact 
details of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. All these things were obviously very top secret at the time and uh, and are still shrouded in secrecy. But there would have been something like, they had something like 11,000 nuclear warheads, probably a lot more, but we know they certainly had 11,000. They were targeted on... um, well, obviously, they were targeted on Salisbury, as as, yes, as we, we heard did. earlier. Yeah, Beach's bookshop would have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that bookshop would have been in the you know the first wave. So there there were a multitude of targets, military targets mostly, um, some civilian targets. Some of the missiles weren't accurate enough to 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 hit a sort of precise target. So so some of them wouldn't have been targeted on airfields or missile silos. Some of them would have been targeted on cities. Um, and of course, as soon as those missiles had been launched, they would have been picked up in and the would the West have the replied? United States? Yes, think? I think without any question. Um, uh, Even though, because I guess what I'm wondering is, is is there? Did they know about nuclear winters at this point? Yes. Yeah, everyone yes, knew about did. that. Everyone so, knew about that, Tom. So yeah. essentially, you're going to die whatever happens. So, I mean, yeah. doesn't. Yes, that's why it's called mutual assured yeah. destruction, because because it's known that, that that if one side attacks the other, the retaliation will will destroy the other side. I mean, what would have happened is much of Western Europe, much of the United of North America would have been taken out in the first wave. Uh, then in the retaliation, much of Eastern Europe and much of Asia would have been taken out. But then this nuclear winter, as you say, Tom, would have descended. Um, so that even countries, you know, third world countries, even you know, southern Africa would have eventually New Zealand is the, been engulfed. New Zealand the Neville, and, and yep. Australia, the Neville Shoot book, isn't there? Yeah, that's the right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But, yeah. but um, to go back a little bit, um, so the Soviet Union obviously had a sense that the, the West would strike first, but that wasn't an unreasonable sense because I, I've been through the you know they they what they call them Wintex Symex, the um, the British government war games, and the one in 1981, for example, incredibly detailed. You can see a lot of it online, declassified files. So these war games often envisaged that in the event of war, the Soviet or Warsaw Pact conventional forces would be would be too strong for NATO. And then eventually, so the Wintex Symex 81 exercise ends with the NATO commanders asking um, Washington and London for permission to use nuclear weapons in the field. And the plan is, and there's a brilliant, you can read it online, I think, there's the brilliant minutes of the cabinet discussion where they basically say, well, we won't take out the Soviet Union. We take out some of the Eastern European satellites to show our limited, you know, because then maybe they'll, they'll, they won't respond overwhelmingly. So if we just nuke Romania and Poland, then maybe, you know, Salisbury will be safe. The Soviet Union will recognise our limited aims. The I mean, Soviet that Union is... will take out Birmingham. Isn't that maybe, in World maybe. War, World War yeah. Three? the General Hackett? <laughs> Yeah, that is that's alternative exactly history. It's yes. Minsk and Birmingham, I think. Minsk and Birmingham. But yeah. I mean, the, this idea that it would have been the Soviet Union that would have used nuclear weapons first. I mean, the Soviet, in a way, they didn't need to because their conventional weapon, their conventional forces in Europe were so strong. Am I right, Taylor? Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, they had two hundred army divisions, you know, uh, uh, available. I mean, way beyond anything that the the Western conventional forces have. But that's what Abel Archer. The NATO exercise—that's what it was about. It, 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 it was about a defeat in a conventional confrontation, and therefore the request to use to use nuclear weapons. And that was what the Soviets. You see, the Soviets had always planned in their attacks upon the West. They'd always planned to do it in the guise of a of a of a military war game, so that 
the West wouldn't wouldn't realize that that this. So they assume that the West are going to do exactly the same. It's going to be a, a military war game that isn't, in fact, a war game. It's the real thing. They they assume this is all maskrovka. They called it in in Russian deception. Every signal in the Abel Archer um, war game, and there were signals being sent round, sort of pretending all these things were happening, began with the words exercise, 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 and then the signals. But of course, in the Soviet mindset, well, that's exactly what they would say, wouldn't they? <laughs> They're not yeah. going to pretend this is the real thing. They're going to pretend it's a war game. And then... They're going to attack us. Um, okay. uh, I think we should take a break, Tom. Um, yes. This is so unbelievably fascinating. I think we should but take a break. kind of terrifying. We should talk a tiny bit about the reaction to the Able Arch thing. So Reagan completely changing his mindset, which is an extraordinary story and still not, I think, as well known as it should be. And then we'll talk more generally about nuclear weapons. So we'll see you after the nuclear winter of the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back. Uh, we are on the cheery topic of how close the world came to total nuclear destruction. And on that theme, if, you, um, if you're interested in it, and I, I, I don't really see how you couldn't be, um, I do recommend uh, another podcast series, um, Atomic Hobo, presented by uh, Julie McDowell, which whenever I want to make my flesh creep, I listen to it and it's it's terrifying and brilliant, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, but uh, enough about Julie's podcast. Let's get back to ours. Um, we have uh, Taylor Downing with us, who has been talking about 1983, um, Abel Archer, the world at the brink. Um, but Taylor, this is 
this is exists in the context, obviously, of the entire post-war period. And I guess it, the story begins with Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, when the eyes of the world, and I guess particularly the Soviet Union, is open to the fact that the United States have a devastating weapon that gives them an overwhelming military advantage for as long as the Soviet Union doesn't have these weapons. Yes, absolutely. Um, 70,000 killed uh, within a few months at Hiroshima and and probably well over 100,000 from the uh, nuclear fallout that that followed. And then another bomb, a different type of bomb in um, Nagasaki uh, a few days later uh, finishes the Second World War and really is the dawn of the next conflict, the Cold War, that follows. It's quite soon that the Soviets catch up. They have their spies at Los Alamos, where the uh, Americans had produced uh, the, the atomic bomb. And in 1949, I think it was August 1949, the Soviets uh, detonate their first atomic bomb. And so the the, the sort of balance of power then effectively becomes a balance of terror. Yeah. The two superpowers in the world, the United States leading the Western democratic world, the Soviet Union leading the communist bloc, um, both have uh, atomic weapons and can sort of stare at each other, you know, a, a across the divide. And there are several, several incidents, as we know, that that, that sort of... Um, but be- before that, before that, while the Americans have the monopoly, is is there any talk about, you know, let's launch a preemptive strike, let's take them out while we can? No, no. The, the Soviet Union had been uh, America's ally. Um, they were very irritated by Soviet behaviour uh, towards Berlin and responded with the Berlin airlift. Uh, they responded with a Marshall Plan to sort of shore up the European economies um, after the devastation of the Second World War. But no, I don't think there was any talk that, ah, oh, we'll, we'll sneak one. I mean, there might have been one or two very um, bombastic, very combative military figures who said, now's the time, you know, let's let's blow these guys back into the Stone Age. We know that was said a few times in the 1950s by the Kurt LeMays and the Thomas Powers and these sort of people who ran Strategic Air Command. But I don't think there was any serious thinking uh, uh, at the top level about using this advantage against the Soviet Union. They simply hoped, the America hoped, that it would maintain its monopoly uh, of nuclear weapons. And I think the CIA had, planned, had, had estimated that it would probably be the end of the 50s before the, mm. before the Soviets catch up. So it's a great surprise when in 1949 they detonate their, their first atomic bomb. But then the whole thing goes into a new era, into, into hydrogen, into thermonuclear weapons. So, so the, 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 the bomb that had been dropped on Hiroshima in technical terms, was a bomb of 14,000 kilotons. That's roughly equivalent to 14,000 tons of TNT. Huge, absolutely massive. But through the 50s, as both sides start testing the use of hydrogen bombs, this escalates off the scale. We're now talking about megatons, millions of tons of TNT equivalent, the explosive power equivalent to millions of tons of TNT. So the Soviet, the Americans launch a, a, a detonator missile of 10 megatons, 10 million tons. The Soviets respond with one of 20 megatons. And finally, in 1961, the largest bomb ever detonated by the Soviet Union is of 50 
megatons, 50 million tons of TNT. Remember, Hiroshima was 14,000, and we know how massively destructive that was. So one can only begin to imagine what an explosion of a 50 megaton. And Americans respond the same way. And certain American thinkers who are, who are working on all this talk about mega deaths. They measure the deaths by millions of deaths. It all just becomes utterly terrifying, the scale of the weaponry uh, and the ability. You know, these wouldn't just destroy mankind. It would destroy probably every living thing on Earth would be destroyed by but, these weapons. But, Taylor, let, I mean, let's get into the, the sort of the, the weeds of the issue. Um, these things are incredibly expensive and incredibly terrifying. Um, but they, you could, if you wanted to make, be, I mean, I actually probably would make this case that ultimately they saved a lot of lives, that a lot of people who are alive now who would be dead um, had these weapons not been developed. Because had they relied on conventional armaments, the chances are, given that we know what we know of human nature and of the history of the 20th century, that the two sides probably would have fought a third world war. But I would argue, now a lot of people will probably say this is a horrific argument, but I would argue that the possession of such unbelievably terrifying weapons stayed their hand and that actually deterrence, well, the, to me, the, the, the story of the Cold War is one of deterrence working. Now, am I just being completely mad and, and over sanguine about that? Or do you think there's some truth in it? No, no, I think I think there is. I mean, that was the justification for deterrence. That that was the justification that neither side, despite the vast cost of these weapons, the huge drain on the economies, particularly of the Soviet bloc, less so in the West, but the huge drain on the economy to produce these weapons, um, despite all of that, that 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 they wouldn't be used. And this, of course, comes to the central crux, in a sense, of uh, Cold War ideology. Robert McNamara, who was Kennedy's defence secretary in the early 60s, comes up with this thing, assured destruction. And somebody rather cleverly adds the word mutual to the beginning of that. <laughs> so this is the most famous acronym of the Cold War, MAD. It's a mad philosophy, mutual assured destruction. But you're absolutely right, Dominic, it, it, it did work. You know, and there's a, there is a case to, to, to be made for the fact that it that it was effective because even on that night in November 1983 that we've just been talking about, the Soviet leaders didn't press the button, didn't launch their missiles because they knew they would be committing national suicide by so, doing so. so. So on the on the theme of this episode, which is basically nuclear war near misses, uh, we've we've talked about 1983. You've cited 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, as the other time that we came close to destruction. Were there other particular moments where the world came perilously close, aside yes. from those two examples? Yes, Tom, absolutely they were. And they're usually revolving around um, accidents, technical failures, computer mishaps, misunderstandings of one sort or another. So, so just to give you an idea of a few, I mean, in July 1957, RF Lakenheath, which is near uh, Cambridge, a B-47 bomber crashed and skidded into a bunker containing nuclear weapons. Whoa. The whole thing was engulfed <laughs> in flames, and it was only down to the very rapid action of not only the Air Force uh, fire brigade, but the local fire brigade that put the fires out just before they ignited 
the nuclear weapons in this bunker. In January 1961, a B-52 bomber, these one of these huge giant eight-engine jet bombers, split apart over North Carolina, um, it, probably some sort of metal fatigue or something, and two 24-megaton thermonuclear bombs fell to Earth in North Carolina. One was recovered quite quickly. The other landed somewhere in swampy ground and has never been recovered. Oh, my God. It's still there. So it's kind of alligator might eat it. (laughs) (laughs) But as long as the alligator doesn't know how to set off the the, the, the trigger. (laughs) On the one they discovered, five out of six safety devices had failed. In January 1966, probably the most famous incident. Oh, that's the one over over Spain. Palomares in Spain. That's right. So the the, the Americans had this... um, their, their, their basic deterrence worked through what they called Operation Chromedone. At any one moment, 12 B-52 bombers were airborne, circling around Soviet, just on the edge of Soviet airspace. They all had pre-assigned targets. And had there been war, they, the go-codes uh, would have been sent out to these aircraft and they would have immediately entered Soviet airspace to attack uh, their pre-assigned targets. This is this was the uh, this was the uh, operation that was wonderfully satirised in Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, yeah. where where it all goes wrong and the commander orders his planes to attack and so on. But anyway, on this day in 1996, there's a B-52 flying out of Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North in North Carolina. It's on a 24-hour mission. It's crossed the Atlantic. It's gone down the Mediterranean. Um, and it's patrolling the Western Soviet border outside airspace, but as I say, waiting for the go codes should they come. This was a 24-7 operation, 12 B-52s. On this particular day, it's returning to the States after this long mission. They have to have two refueling um, uh, operations in the course of the 24-hour flight. And it's the second of the two coming back about to cross the Atlantic, but still over the Mediterranean, where the aircraft collides with the fuel tanker that is that is sent up to refuel it, a huge fireball in the in the sky. Most of the people involved uh, are, are killed immediately, um, but four thermonuclear weapons fall to the ground. Three of them landing on a beach near Palomares. They recovered quite quickly, although they leaked a small amount of, of nuclear waste. Um, but it took months that the fourth had fallen into the Mediterranean and. It had actually remarkably fallen down a sort of canyon in, in the Mediterranean. So it was, I think, 2,000 feet deep, something like that. And it takes months to, to find this, this, this fourth weapon um, uh, and, and, and retrieve it. And the arguments between the Spanish and the U.S. governments over compensation, you know, go on for, for, for about 50 years, in fact. They, they were resolved in the early part of this century. And there's another accident over fuel in, in Greenland. And eventually governments object to the idea that the Americans are flying B-52 bombers with their nuclear weapons overhead. Fair enough. Fair exactly. enough. But if they've yeah. got a habit of dropping them. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With that metal fatigue, you know. And then there's another one, uh, in, in, another story. In, in the Cuban Missile Crisis itself, which we've already referred to, you know, a very, very tense moment in the, in the Cold War, the Americans are very fearful that the Soviets will try and get agents into their bases and to sabotage aircraft or missiles. So on this one particular night at Duluth Air Force Base in Minnesota, a guard spots an intruder climbing over the fence uh, and sets off an alarm. This immediately triggers alarms at other air bases 
in the Midwest. But at one of them, the wrong alarm goes off. It's not we have an intruder. It's we are coming under nuclear attack. So all the aircraft rally to the end of the runways. They're just about fully armed with nuclear weapons. They're just about to sort of take off to, to launch a, a reprisal when the base commander realizes that the wrong alarm has has gone off and they're all recalled. Phew, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Back at Duluth in Minnesota, they find that the intruder was a grizzly bear. A hungry grizzly bear nearly sets off World War Three. But Taylor, I suppose in, in complete contrast to my earlier sort of sanguine, or oh, they, they, they saved lots of lives, uh, some listeners will say, well, the lesson of all this is that one day, you know, we've been lucky and lucky and lucky and lucky, and one day we won't be lucky, and the planet will be destroyed. Um, do you buy that? Uh, looking back on the Cold War period, I think we were miraculously lucky. I think the number of incidents, and I could, I could relate more, the number of incidents where we came so close to a nuclear accident coming out of some misunderstanding or some technical failure. There are lots of cases as well where computers malfunction. Remember, computers that were running the nuclear systems in the 1960s, certainly, uh, you know, had far less computing power than, than your iPhone today yeah. has. These are very unsophisticated controls. Uh, and they go wrong on several occasions. Uh, and there's another one in the Cuban Missile Crisis where, where, where they, the, 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 the early warning system is going through a test and it, and it gets confused as to yeah. a conventional satellite coming over uh, and, and its test run. And again, it goes right up to Strategic Air Command uh, to prepare to launch a retaliation against the Soviet Union. You know, the, the, I think overall, to answer your question, yes, I think it was a, a miracle that... It, we got through the Cold War without there being some sort of yeah, I mean, I mean, conflagration. Whenever, you know, my laptop malfunctions or something, <laughs> it always makes me think, how on earth did we survive the Cold War? Um, but we did. Um, and I suppose going into the, the post-Cold War period, generally people have been able to breathe more easily. And, and yet, perhaps in a way it's become more dangerous because there are certain flashpoints where there could be nuclear war, but it wouldn't destroy the entire planet. And so therefore perhaps there are governments that think, well, we might, we might give it a go. And I guess the two notorious flashpoints are India and Pakistan and North Korea. Yes. Is that, is that fair? Have I yes. I think fixed on there. I mean, I mean, picking up on, on both the points you're making, you know, Dominic, your point about it was a sort of balanced world and therefore a safer world, the, the sort of bipolar nature of the Cold War, where there were just basically, you know, two, two sets of, of, of powers did have a level of balance. What we're now into is a multipolar nuclear world where several countries oh god and israel and iran weapons. i forgot them as well yeah absolutely yeah Ooh, yeah so yes. so so both india and pakistan as you say tom have nuclear weapons there could well be a dispute that would uh, again this sort of what we were talking about earlier with able arch with the nato exercise you know if one side feels it's losing then it's more likely to launch a nuclear attack upon upon the other so we've got we've got um pakistan and and india Iran doesn't yet, as far as we know, have a nuclear capability, but Israel does. And if there is some sort of terrible shooting war in the Middle East that, that, that escalates, then it's impossible to imagine a nuclear conflagration there. North Korea, we're pretty sure, has some sort of nuclear 
capability, although it's quite unclear what it is. And, you know, that's a very unstable, very strange political entity in North Korea. So in a sense, the world is, is, is a more dangerous place now in this sort of multipolar game. And it is easier, I think, to imagine that somebody will start what they see as a limited nuclear exchange, hoping to get benefit out of it. But the trouble with any form of nuclear exchange is that it will escalate. And, and, and what about the United States and China? As so people talk about Taiwan as an incredibly dangerous flashpoint. Um, do, do you think there's, there's a prospect that that might escalate to a degree that, you know, we're staring down the barrel of nuclear confrontation again? Just to cheer the uh, listeners up as we come to the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is this is very cheery, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, I think it's unlikely, to be honest. I think both China you heard and it here first, the United folks. States have enough restraints built into their systems. Um, but but it's it's entirely impossible to predict. And the trouble, as I say, is how these things would escalate very rapidly. And the trouble with crises and periods of crises is that they bring misunderstandings, they bring a misinterpretation of what's going on, they bring a sense of panic. That's exactly what happened in 1983. The Soviets panicked that they were about to come under attack, having completely misread the signs. And it is very possible that that could happen again today in the multipolar nuclear world that we're living in. But let's just end on a slightly more cheery note. So the 1983, arguably the closest the world has ever come to nuclear war, that did kind of end happily, didn't it? Because Ronald Reagan, who had previously been all about the this sort of evil empire rhetoric, when he learned through Oleg Gordievsky, the Soviet defector, when he learned how frightened the Russians had been, he completely changed his view of the Soviet Union and of the, you know, he became much more... He he writes in his memoirs about what a revelation it was. He said, "I'd never it never occurred to him before that they would be frightened of us." So that and is a kind of cheery thought in a way. It is, it is, and in its way, the his reaction to that begins the end of the Cold War. He says, "We must never be in a position again where the Soviets can misunderstand us, where they will think we we might launch a preemptive attack. You know, the American view is we don't do Pearl Harbors. You know, we don't launch um, our planes on a, on a, you know, uh, out of a, out of a, uh, a blue, a blue sky. You know, we don't do these things and we must make sure that the Soviets understand we would never launch a preemptive attack. That's what Reagan says in 1984, 1985, when the news comes through about how panicked they were. So he says, I must get to know these guys. And then eventually in 1985, after another Chernyenko, Andropov dies, Chernyenko, an even older Soviet leader takes over. Um, when he finally dies, the Politburo decide we've got to get a new generation in charge. And of course, this man, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev comes along, Reagan reaches out to him, they meet, and guess what? They get on. They get on well together. They disagree fundamentally over ideological issues and strategic issues, but they get on 
as individuals. And from that moment onwards, the sort of likelihood of a misunderstanding escalating to a full nuclear Armageddon gets less and less and less. And there are a series of conferences and treaties and summits that we all know about, Geneva, Reykjavik, uh, Washington, and so on. And that begins the process, not only of nuclear disarmament, certain intermediate range weapons are, are abolished altogether, but it sort of basically begins the process that, that ends the Cold War. So yes, yes, Dominic, it does have a happy ending. Well, Taylor, thanks so much. That was brilliant, um, if incredibly depressing and harrowing. Um, and uh, I I can't recommend uh, your, your book, 1983, The World at the Brink Enough. It's a completely chilling uh, read and actually gave me sleepless nights for quite a long time after it, I'd read it. It is um, chilling though, Tom, but I mean, it didn't happen. You know, it could be quite... I mean, but it might have happened. Yeah, but it didn't. So I retrospectively, it cast a shadow over my memories of... Of Growing up in uh, 1980s Wiltshire. Yeah. You see, I think... Realising um, that myself, um, the uh, Brooks Bookshop, Brooks Bookshop... <laughs> totally. And actually, Dominic, I'll tell you something actually also very sinister that happened was that I was going through my father's papers... Yeah. So he had a whole stash of papers which he, he kept. Uh, and he was clerk to the parish council of Broadchalk in the picturesque Chalk Valley. And uh, there was a whole load of papers that he'd been given as clerk of the parish council on how to cope with uh, a nuclear strike. Oh, yes. And it was yeah. all about how to kind of bury dead cattle. Absolutely. And, and where, where bodies should be disposed well, of. And, well, as, as you know, I'm you a know. big fan of all this sort of protect and survive um, stuff, you know, and there was these public information films that told you how to bury the bodies of your loved ones outside your fallout room um, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, the key thing I always think, I mean, we haven't got onto threads and stuff, which I know Taylor is interested in, as am I, all the sort of fantasies of, of nuclear apocalypse. But the key thing, I think, would be to die straight away. You want to be incinerated right at the beginning. You don't want to be wandering around some sort of dark ages, frozen well, you want wasteland. Be... So, so one film that I did see was a, it was a series called QED and it was about a nuclear missile being dropped over St. Paul's and it kind of worked out exactly what would happen. And I yeah. remember they put, um, I think, a kind of melon or something, uh, watermelon on a stick uh, and then they sh sh blew shattered glass at it to simulate what the effect would be of being in a room with glass. And that would make me definitely want to be killed immediately yeah. because what happens to your head in the event of glass hitting it? You don't want to be one of these people horrible. who's living in the sort of post-apocalyptic kingdom of Mercia fighting the mutants. I mean, well, no, the end of threads, which I, I think we should do an ep episode we will on. Do. We will do. We, we should do that on how people envisaged what the effects of nuclear war would be, but yeah. maybe not for immediately because, to be honest, it's a bit depressing. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, on that so, note. Uh, we'll, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be back soon with hopefully some kind of more yeah. cheery stuff. Thank you again, Taylor, and we'll <laughs> see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.